The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. Welcome to the Home Cinema Podcast for July. In this episode, we discuss step two of the Picture Perfect campaign. And joining me on the Home Cinema Podcast this evening is Stuart Wright, Mark Hodgkinson and Steve Weathers. Good evening, guys. Good evening, Phil. Good evening, Phil. Evening, Phil. We may as well talk about step two of Picture Perfect. Uh, last month, we uh, we launched a campaign. Uh, the podcast was all about the Picture Perfect campaign, what it's all about, basic settings, which were uh, to put your TV into cinema mode and also to choose the correct picture size. We're moving on to step two this month. And the whole reason why this podcast is a week late is so that we can discuss this and go over the different things that we are doing in step two. Now, originally, Steve, we were going to do more advanced controls in step two, but decided that, hang on a minute, we need to switch things off. Yeah, that's right, Phil. I mean, you know, as, as anyone who's read our reviews will know, uh, modern TVs all include quite a, a lot of features. Unfortunately, a lot of them, in fact, if not most of them, uh, aren't really that beneficial to the picture. Uh, and so definitely after doing step one, which was you know, select the movie mode and select the correct aspect ratio, uh, the next step is to turn off all the things that you don't want on because they're detrimental to your image. Um, and we realized we needed to do that first before we moved on to what will be step three uh, and actually setting certain controls using test patterns. So um, yeah, we had to turn everything turn everything off. Um, and then it came a question of you know what to turn off, uh, what they're called, different manufacturers use different names. It all starts getting a bit complicated, doesn't it, Phil? It does. And... The first one that we had to cover was energy saving. Now, the big thing in step one that we said, Stuart, was that if you calibrate your TV correctly, you will save energy. Yet these new TVs have energy saving features, but why are we telling people to switch them off? Uh, Everybody's interested in saving energy these days, and it's one of the big selling points of setting your TV up right. Um, Except the eco mode, as it's called on some tellies, the energy saving settings, um, seem to just alter the brightness um, to varying degrees and um, the overall effect is detrimental to the picture. Uh, you actually save most of the, the energy in this process of setting your TV upright by selecting the right picture mode, which we did in step one. Obviously, these energy saving features, Mark, that are on the TVs, some of it is because of legislation in some territories. And I understand you've just reviewed an LG TV, Plasma TV, which yeah. uses a little bit more energy than an LCD. Um, and it shipped with a quite a strange automatic mode. Yeah, it was an APS mode or auto power save, which has all sorts of uh, power saving options enabled. It was actually quite bright, which was surprising, but then the colours were really washed out. And then uh, a lot of fluctuation in the brightness, I mean, aside from what the telly did anyway. But um, even with everything disabled, you'd, you'd frequently see it go up and down. Very distracting. Um, and there's at least three energy saving um, settings on modern TVs, and you've really got to hunt them out and, and get them switched off. You raise a good point there, Mark, and this was the point that, that we're trying to get across, is that these features, they're there to pass legislation in some, some areas like California, where a TV can only use uh, a certain amount of power. So obviously it has to, it has to ship in that mode that, that automatically adjusts the power settings. Now, the problem with these features is that they dim and change the brightness of the image almost on an ad hoc basis. Whenever it's using too much power, it suddenly dims the image and so on. And the whole reason we're telling people is that we want a stable image and the, the easiest way to save energy is to put it into the cinema mode or the THX mode, Steve. That's right, Phil. Um, as you say, as Stuart's just said, uh, you know, these TVs are fairly energy efficient um, out of the box, to be honest. And certainly by selecting uh, the movie or cinema or THX mode, you'll, you'll, you'll reduce the overall brightness and therefore improves energy efficiency as well. And just using these energy saving features, what happens is, as you say, Phil, is, is that you end up with a fluctuating picture. The brightness is adjusted depending either on the amount of energy being used or the amount of environmental light in the room. And you end up with an image that, uh, you know, that is constantly fluctuating, which is, you know, not what you want to be seeing. It's, it's off-putting, it's distracting, and it isn't what the director intended. And one of the funniest things about this whole energy saving thing is that um, I've noticed it on the forums, people saying that uh, they're going to buy an LCD TV because it's going to save them more energy, yet uh, in the next breath they're talking about switching on their, their uh, pre-processor and uh, 
the power amplifiers, which are probably using about six times as much energy as the TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyone who's ever put an energy meter on an amplifier <laughs> will know how much juice some of those draws. Uh, you know, yeah, way, way more than your TV, even a, even a large plasma would draw. Um, so, yeah, I mean, or, or more to the point, going and boiling the kettle, that, that uses way more energy than putting a telly on. Uh, it's, all, it's all relative, I suppose, and as you say, a lot of it's driven by legislation in certain territories. But the reality is that a modern television, be it an LED, LCD or plasma, is very energy efficient. Um, I, sorry, can I, I did a calculation, uh, plasma versus LED, just based on my energy prices. Uh, and I think this was a 40 two inch LED against a 42 inch plasma uh, and my yearly cost for the LED was um, 16 pounds and for the plasma was something like 28 so it's hardly when people are talking about saving energy for for money it doesn't it, it doesn't really equate to very much how much in your calculations there Mark how much were you watching the TV um, that was on eight hours a day which is quite high but that's that's way. I mean, the average. Yeah, I was I was on eight hours a day just just because of what I watched. So it was more of a, a personal thing, really. Well, yeah, you. Well, not you know, the house. So it could even be a third. Yeah, of that could well be. It's, it's, it's really it's isn't. It's not a lot year. of money at all. <laughs> Again, that's an interesting point that you raised there, Mark. And that's the first step of uh, step two is to switch off any eco settings. If you need advice and help for that, then there's two ways to do that. You can go to the Picture Perfect website mypictureperfect.tv and select step two once you've done step one uh, and there's a detail button which is yellow next to the eco uh, energy saving settings click that and it'll give you some text or you can watch the video where we show you how to do that on uh, the LG TV that we've used for that video so that's energy saving the next one again Steve very similar control it's one of these features that is added in to most TVs nowadays, that's dynamic brightness features. Seems to be more with backlit TVs like LED TVs, but again, these are features that, that mess around with the image and image stability. Yeah, that's right, Phil. I mean, the ultimate res the result of this feature is you'll get the same kind of brightness fluctuations that you would have been seeing with uh, an eco setting. The difference is why they're doing it. In this particular case, what they're trying to do is increase the dynamic range of the image. In other words, make the blacks blacker and the whites whiter. And they do that by adjusting the contrast and brightness settings from scene to scene, depending on what that scene is, how much how much dark element there is to that scene, how much white element there is to that scene. And the idea is to, is to, is to boost these elements, the, the brighter bits and the darker bits, to give the image what's called dynamic range, which is that literally the range between black and white. Um, the problem is that whilst it does give the impression perhaps of increased dynamic range, is that there's always a trade-off, and the trade-off is that you end up with a fluctuating picture from again from scene to scene. And once again, it can become annoying, it's distracting, and it's not what the director intended. Now, there are a few of these controls. One's called dynamic contrast. Uh, there's also other examples like black enhancer, um, dynamic backlight, now, dynamic backlight is one of those controls we're going to come back to when we get onto dimming features. Again, uh, Mark, I think you raised this one. It's a name that a lot of manufacturers use for different things. Um, it can be for backlight control. It can also be um, a dimming control as well. But all these different names, it confuses the consumer and you can understand why people are a little bit reticent to go into the menus and switch these things off. Absolutely, Phil. I mean, even I mean, Steve and I will probably admit to it. You have to check these things out to see what they're actually doing, and sometimes you need you need the aid of patterns to do that. And of course, the average end user isn't going to go go about testing these sort of features. Um, they're just they're just there to make up the numbers, as far as I'm concerned. People people want to see a, well, at least the uh, marketing guys want to see a load of options in the menus, and it's just one way of doing it. Um, very confusing for all concerned, really. And I don't think some of the manufacturers know what some of the controls do, if I'm honest. You know, the marketing guys might like to see lots of things in the menus, and you completely understand why, um, you know, they want to put them there. But as an end user, and I'm not as technically up with the calibrating TVs as you guys are, but so I consider myself closer to being an end user. I certainly don't want to see lots of options in the TVs menus. No, and actually, I don't, I'm speaking to anyone, I don't know anyone that does, but someone seems to think that we do. I mean, in an ideal world, we want them to ship TVs that adhere to industry standards and uh, don't involve any of these these special features. Um, it would make uh, you know, make our jobs a lot easier in terms of setting them up and uh, calibrating them. Well, have we actually addressed the, the the question of why manufacturers don't ship TVs with these settings uh, either not here or you know by default in the closest to the industry standards? Did we address that in step one? 
Yes, we did. At length. <laughs> to be bright. Yeah. Okay. Which which we, we can't deny them that. I mean, it is a business at the end of the day. They have to sell product. And this is why we, in step one, we have the issue of uh, set shipping in dynamic modes, which is great for a shop, useless for your living room. Again, these controls are added in. It's another thing that can stick on the ticket next to the TV in the showroom. Using big words like dynamic brightness. The consumer doesn't know what it is, but it's a feature that's on the TV. It sounds quite good, doesn't it, on the face of it? Dynamic, brightness. So positive positive words. Marketing guys like a nice long list of features that they can put in adverts, they can put on spec sheets, they can put at point of sale. I mean, they're all competing with one another. And we, we, we appreciate that this is a business and they need to sell TVs. Um, it's just unfortunate that, A, every manufacturer seems to use different names for these same features, which makes it even more confusing to the consumer. Um, and also, as, um, as Mark's pointed out, on a lot of these features, I'm pretty sure you know, we have to work out what they do. Sometimes, you know, their, their actual purpose is not obvious. And uh, and sometimes I'm not entirely sure the manufacturers know what they really do either. Makes me wonder, actually, sometimes that the marketing guys say to the engineers in the back room, they say, look, we need a we need another feature. Can you come up with something? And the engineers are thinking, yeah, oh, God, we've got to add another DFA button. Yeah, I think I think what happens is they'll, they'll look at the other guy's TVs and they'll say, well, this guy's got, you know, he's got a skin naturalizer. Um, control why can't we have one of those so i think that's the way it goes they just have to they have to compete i guess they don't want to think people are missing out on some advanced new feature and they've got to stick it in there but i wonder if everyone anyone will be ever brave enough for to not do it probably not you just need to look at um another good example not tvs but car the car market if, if you're trying to sell a bmw or an audi i mean look at how many abbreviations are on a checklist when you look at, say, a BMW 3 Series, all the abbreviated things for, like, um, stability control and ABS brakes and all that kind of thing. I mean, they seem to make yeah. things up on the spot just to sell a product. Everyone does it, in all fairness. We're not picking on the TV manufacturers. I think you know, in any industry, any product, you're always trying to make yours unique, have some kind of USP attached to it. Um, you know, and the manufacturers of TVs and the different manufacturers of cars or any other product, and they, they need to differentiate their product in the marketplace, and they need to sell TVs. And if, if they feel, the market people feel that uh, a feature, a, you know, a really rich feature list, will help them do that, then of course they'll try and do it. Fortunately, the reality is what we know is that in fact, really, the opposite is true. What you want to do is have as pure a picture as image as possible that uh, you know adheres to the standards that we used to create the content in the first place. You know, they can't even say it's a unique selling point. They even have to call it a USP. Okay, so that's dynamic brightness. It's another one of these features. If you're not sure about it, go to the website. There is a details tab that will tell you all about it and why you should switch it off. Again, this links into an LCD LED feature, which is dimming. Now, the easiest way to explain this is that uh, a plasma TV is a self-illuminating technology, which means it creates its own light by sending an electrical charge into the panel and it doesn't have a light behind it. Now, an LCD has a light behind it, it then has a panel which blocks off the pixels uh, and to get the light, it moves backwards and forwards, uh, opens up the pixels so you get light or you don't get light. This whole thing about local dimming, global dimming, LEDs behind the panel, LEDs at the edge of the panel, the end goal, guys, correct me if I'm wrong, is basically to do the same thing that a plasma TV does anyway. Yeah, basically, it's trying to replicate the performance of a plasma TV. Because you say, Phil, it's self-illuminating, which means when you're not putting energy into one of the pixels, which has got phosphors in it, it stops glowing. So your blacks are much blacker. Whereas on an LCD, of course, you're putting the light through the panel. Unless the light can be completely blocked off, which it can't be, then you're never going to have you know, the kind of deep blacks you'll get on a plasma. Unless you turn the LED off completely. And obviously, there's no light illuminating it, and therefore it's going to look blacker. And that's the concept behind dimming: it's literally turning off the LED lights to make blacks look blacker. Now, global dimming turns off turns off all the LED lights. So basically, if you have a, a black screen, it will be really black. But of course, in reality, you're never looking at a black screen, or it shouldn't be, um, unless maybe it's a radio show you're listening to. But it, you know, you're not going to be looking at a black screen. Therefore, those kind of global dimming features are a bit of a cheat. They're basically just there to make the contrast ratio, which is the difference between peak white and absolute black, to make that as big as possible. So you'll see some ridiculous numbers, sometimes millions and millions to one or infinite contrast ratio. Well, that's because they just turn the backlight off, uh, which is you know something of a cheat because in cl- clearly in reality, that's never going to be the case when you're actually watching TV. The more important ones, I guess, in terms of picture performance are what's called localized dimming, 
And as the name suggests, it, it actually dims parts of the picture, obviously the dark parts of the picture. And it does that by breaking up the image into, um, into a series of zones. Uh, and the LED lights in that zone will be turned off. Now, clearly, the more zones, then uh, the you know, the more accuracy you've got in terms of adjusting the brightness of the image. So, you know, if you ideally, if you've got two million pixels, yeah, maybe I say, you say that you say that, Steve. But some of the worst examples of local dimming have been the, the ones with the the um, the local the local dimming algorithms that have been a complete disaster with some TVs. So sometimes the global dimming works a bit more effectively. They try and overstretch themselves. Local dimming is yeah. I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, unless you've got absolute control over every single pixel which is yeah. basically what a plasma is, <laughs> you, you know, you're always going to have a degree of inaccuracy in there. You know, you, you know if, if it's, say, it's two, even 200 blocks, which is quite a lot of local dimming zones, yeah. uh, there's not a big amount of accuracy on over the whole picture. So, of course, what you get is you get things like uh, haloing or glowing around objects where where part of the object is dark and part of it's light, but it's crossing across one of the zones. And you'll, and you'll get this kind of glowing effect. Um, we, we call it haloing sometimes. Um, also, you know, you, you lose it. You lose peak de uh, detail in the picture. Yeah, I've, I've seen things completely disappear and then reappear, you know, three inches along the screen. There's a uh, there's a uh, a scene in uh, the last Harry Potter film uh, where all the armies of Voldemort mass on this hill. It's a very, very dark scene with everyone wearing blacks and greys and browns on a sort of, you know, bray, a brown and dark green background. Um, and if you put on a local dimming on that scene, uh, quite often it, it, you just won't be able to see a thing. Um, because it's just losing detail in 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 the shadows because you've just turned off the LED. Um, so yeah, it, it works to a degree. It will make your blacks look blacker, but there's always a, again, as with all these features, there's some kind of trade-off. In this particular case, you can end up with either loss of detail or haloing around bright objects against dark backgrounds. Now the other problem with local dimming, guys, is the fact that if you you switch local dimming off on some of these TVs then obviously you're taking away what they've actually designed to do, which is to, to produce a, a blacker black. And when you switch it off, suddenly the blacks are all grey because they haven't thought about people who switch it off and suddenly the black level rises on the TV. Yeah, yeah, that's a big concern, isn't it? We won't we won't name any names, but yeah, there's, there's a few TVs like that. And I think, and we know, we know uh, a lot of the uniformity problems that come along with LED TVs in particular, uh, where we have... Pool, light pooling, as we call it, or clouding, where we have patches of light. I think a lot of the um, the LED dimming features are, are designed to hide those, so they're on by default. But you switch them off, and you see a load of uniformity problems, as well as your your washed out blacks. So that's why, in the explanations that I put on the website, um, that with dimming, the there isn't a simple solution. Switch it off. Yeah, there's, I, I agree with that, Stuart. There isn't quite a simple solution. But, I mean, it's, it's difficult for the end user to assess. But I think if you've got uh, bad uniformity problems and you're not returning your set, then uh, sometimes it's a decent idea to switch it onto low just to hide those. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there are definitely TVs I can think of. Again, I won't mention any names, but you know, without using some local dimming, the picture's borderline unwatchable in terms of black levels, where they're just a, a, a washy grey, you know, a dark grey at best. Uh, and really, you have to use it. Sorry, and, and if anybody's unsure about whether to have, to have dimming on or off, um, they can either ask on the Picture Perfect website or they can, do you suggest that people um, have a play with the settings and see see what it looks like? Uh, is, by all, is, yeah, by all means, have a play, Stuart. Um, but then if you come and ask us and give us a specific make and model of your TV, the chances are one of us will have run across it, so we'll probably have to give you a bit more informed advice on that. But yeah, but all means have a play. You can always put it back how it was. Yeah, you can just turn, turn it on and off and see. I mean, obviously, if, it, if the black levels are so poor without it on, then you may not have any choice but to, to put it on, at least in the low mode, to give the blacks some, you know, some, some depth to them uh, and just trade off the fact that you're going to lose a bit of detail in some of the dark scenes. Um, well, you know, if you read, if if you have, if your TV is a TV that we've reviewed, then we would have probably addressed this in the review as well. So it might be worth just reading through the review and seeing what we had to say about local dimming settings and what we thought of them at the time. For the benefit of people who don't know what a poor black level looks like, what does a poor black level look like? Grey. <laughs> Imagine watching the TV at a dark scene on a sunny day, and you've thrown the curtains open, and 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 it's just all washed out, just a a, a, a gr pale grey rather than a deep black. So, so things that are supposed to be black in the picture aren't black; they're a dark grey. Yeah. Um, does it matter that you know? Can you improve the situation by drawing the curtains and watching a movie in near darkness? Because that's where you're going to notice the the problem the most with an LED TV. Um, 
and this was a, a point I was just about to raise. I mean, when you go into a showroom to have a look at an LED TV, the blacks always look great because either the LED local dimming's on or if you're lucky enough and pick up the remote control and switch it off, it's still going to look okay because of the lighting that's in the showroom. You're not going to notice yeah. how, how, how bad the blacks are until you get into an environment like your viewing environment. Mainly when you've got the lights dimmed down, that's when that's the main weak spot for an LED TV. Yeah. Um, I've got, I've got a, one here at the moment, minute which we've been using for filming. During the day, looks fine. As soon as you dim the lights down, uh, which I did for filming, um, it looks terrible with the dimming switched off because it, it just raises the black level. So it looks grey. I mean, you can notice that. It's really noticeable when you switch it off. When you switch it on to low, it's a little bit better, but then you start seeing the issues with it because it's a, an edge-lit LED TV. You start seeing light corners, light pooling, like Mark mentioned, and clouding and so on. So it's it's a drawback of the technology. It's the way the technology works. I mean, if you're going to stick a bright light behind anything and try and block it off, light's always going to find a way to escape, or um, especially when, you, when you're watching in, in dark conditions. So that is a weak spot. And, and if you're going to watch in dark positions and you're going to watch films, especially uh, cinemascope films with uh, black bars top and bottom, get yourself a plasma because an LED is never going to look good with that oh. kind of content. This podcast does sound very down on LED TVs. I mean, are are LCD TVs the same? Uh, my experience, they generally have a better better uniformity. I mean, it's not that they have zero uniformity problems, but um, they tend to have been a bit thicker, so the lights kept away from from the front of the of the display so much. Um, I mean, when you you don't tend to see that many. I mean, just to make it clear here for, for the listeners, uh, they're all LCD TVs whether they use an LED backlight or a CCFL backlight, which is basically just a fluorescent tube. Um, whether, regardless of what they're using to light the TV up, the panel is an LCD panel. The manufacturers have been slightly disingenuous in some of, some of their marketing by calling them LED TVs. They're not LED TVs. They're LCD TVs that use LED lights to light the panel up. Um, the thing is, you don't see that many CCFL TVs now a lot of them are LED because they're more energy efficient and because they can make them thinner and put the LEDs on the edge of the screen, which means that you get these really th thin TVs, really narrow TVs. But of course, in order to get the light behind the panel, they bounce it off a mirror, which is why you end up with the things Mars was talking about, which is you know, light pooling at the edges where the LEDs actually are, or cloudiness where it's uneven because you know it's not d evenly distributed behind the panel. Um, occasionally, when we do see a CCFL TV, you always think that looks really good because it doesn't have the the um, the uniformity issues that quite often plague LED um, LCD TVs, where they have the lights on the edge of the screen. Um, yeah, I've got a 32-inch CCFL LCD TV in the dining room that I sit next to quite a lot, and its uniformity is absolutely perfect. It's been <laughs> sort of a couple of years, and you know, you just you wouldn't know. It's like a little mini plasma in some ways. It's, it's amazing, but yeah, LED came along and ruined all that. Well, if we've actually reviewed a lot of um, LED LCD TVs and giving them badges, um, so they can't all be really bad, can they? Well, when you're giving a badge, obviously you're, you're dealing with you. There's a lot of criteria you're looking at, and black level is just one of them. Um, you know, if, if you're looking for absolute blacks, really deep blacks, and you watch a lot of movies, then I, I guess you'd probably better off buying a plasma because because that's what you're going to get with a plasma. However, if you're a big gamer and you play a lot of video games, and also you have a lot of static images on your TV on a, on a regular basis, then clearly a plasma wouldn't necessarily be ideal, because obviously with plasmas, you, you can get image retention if you leave the same image up for too long. Then an LCD TV is going to be preferable. Um, and then it comes down to you know, what kind of LCD TV, LCD TV do you want to buy? Um, if you want something that's going to be very slim, you can hang on the wall, and it's going to make the wife happy, then you're probably going to get something using, using edge LED um, backlighting. If, however, you, you don't mind it being a bit thicker, you know, three or four centimetres deeper, then maybe you want to go for something with a CCFL backlight and you get some better blacks out of it and a more even backlight. There's lots of criteria, Stuart. So there's plenty of LED LCD TVs we've reviewed that have looked, like as Phil's pointed out, you know, in daylight, look fantastic. Um, maybe not quite so strong in the evenings when the lights are down low, but there's always ways around that. You could do, I think we definitely mentioned on previous podcasts about using bias lighting to try and make the perceived blacks look better on a TV where perhaps the black levels aren't so strong. So you could, you know, use your LED. If you watch a lot of TV during the day, maybe it's not such an issue. If, if in the evenings you have a bit of bias light on, it can be minimised. So again, there's lots of criteria that we use for scoring a TV. So an LED LCD TV, LCD TV may well have got a highly recommended or recommended badge um, because it's a strong performer in other areas. And uh, 
just to combat what you were saying there about us being down on on um, LED LCD TV, Stuart, there are issues with plasma TVs that a lot of people can't put up with. Uh, one of the main ones is flicker. P- people that are susceptible to flicker, a plasma is just not for them because there's no, that's the way the technology works. The same as how an LED works, it's be- uh, LCD TV works. It's because it's got a backlight behind it. Plasma is a little bit better, but if people see flicker they're not going to be able to live with a plasma. So so each display technology is not perfect. Um, they all have their the downsides, and it's uh, it's about compromising and, and fitting in with what you can put up with as an individual and what you're looking for from, from a TV as well. So we're not getting down an LED. We're just highlighting some of the uh, some of the drawbacks, which on some models are big drawbacks. Um, yeah, so I, think I think we're talking about it because a lot of these features we're, we're talking about right now are LED features, really, aren't they? Well, they're features that have been developed to address limitations in a technology. So local dimming, we're going to get on to another one in a minute, which is frame interpolation. And both of these things were developed to address uh, inherent weaknesses in, in the technology um, that have been turned into marketing features as a, on the back of that. Like we said, if you need advice, uh, there are two ways of doing that. Go to the Picture Perfect website or go to the Picture Perfect forum on AV Forums. The address is avforums.com forward slash pictureperfect. Ask your questions there if you're not sure. Like the guys say, we've probably come across uh, certainly your Maker TV and probably the model that, that you have, and we should be able to give you some advice on what to do with the local dimming. And um, before we go into frame interpolation, Steve was getting a little bit ahead of himself there because the next thing that we're going to talk about is sharpening and noise reduction features like edge enhancement, noise reduction, MPEG noise reduction. There's loads of different names. Resolution Plus comes to mind, which is uh, Toshiba's version of it. These controls, guys, again, um, these are a little bit more subtle in how they work. And some users flicking through the controls on, off, low, high, might not actually see any difference. Yeah, yeah, Phil, uh, that's true. I mean, you, you have to look closely sometimes, but you can get some um, clear representations of it. Um, for instance, we've got given a, a Blu-ray uh, after the ISF calibration course uh, it's uh, some footage of a, a guy holding a pool cue up against a, a, a black curtain um, and you can turn the edge enhancing super resolutioning reality creation type settings on and you can just start to see thin layers of um, pixels building up around the outside sometimes on the inside of edges as well to really give that edge definition uh, so basically you, you're actually obscuring the fine details from around edges at the sake of uh, like a, a, um, a contrast enhancement trick to make the edges look sharper and more defined. But the the edges of the pool, pool cue. Yeah, the the, the outer edges. Looking so, up. So why 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 around the edges? The hell, it was held vertically. Well, the, the, yeah, and as you turn the sharpness or edge enhancing controls or super resolution controls up, you can see a fine layer layer of pixels being built up around the edges, and then some, sometimes just inside the edges, just to give that edge more definition. Is this the same kind of effect that we used to see um, if we looked closely at um, DVDs? When it's exactly the same thing, Stuart. Exactly the same thing. Same Just thing. edge enhancement. And and the whole reason to do that is um, uh, because it does play a trick on the eye. If you mess about with, uh, with these types of controls with something that has a lot of straight lines, it will look like that the lines are suddenly a lot, more, a lot sharper, basically. But they're not. It's false. It's adding in these extra extra pixels, and and what it's doing is it's actually covering over detail which should be there. Um, so it looks very false. And then when you get any kind of movement with within a scene like that, say it's a, a landscape scene where it's using a lot of sharpening effects like that, what you get is uh, you'll either get lines that look like they're. I, I guess the easiest way to explain it, the simplest way to explain it, is like the the lines are almost twittering. The, 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 the like they're moving yeah. like flashing on and off really quickly if it's a really fine detailed scene that you're looking at you'll get an effect which is called mare um, which is quite difficult to explain but basically the whole image starts to shimmer um, so the detail like, in fact if you screw your eyes up really tight and start looking you, at something I used to see it a lot that. on TV in the old days particularly in sound definition broadcast when someone had uh, a jacket or a shirt yeah, that that's a right, crisscross exactly. pattern on it then you would see moiré in that um, that's the best way I think of describing it if you've ever seen that kind of shimmering effect across you know checkers on a very t- very tiny 
check check shirts or jackets on on old TV programs that used to really show up. Then Frank Frank Boff comes to mind for some reason. Yeah, <laughs> Frank. Yeah, for some reason, I, I, it I doesn't think... often. <laughs> but yeah, he does on this occasion. I dread I dread to think what would happen if you were watching one of the older DVDs that's got edge enhancement in it with edge enhancement features on the telly switched on. I mean, the, the, I I remember seeing it clearly. In the, intro- in the first scenes of Last of the Mohicans, where you've got a panning shot of the horizon with very um, dark green sort of forest set against uh, a lighter sky. And I remember seeing along the top of the, the forest, um, below, just you know, a few pixels below the horizon, you could see a white line, and a few pixels above the horizon, you could see a dark line. I mean, or, or if you just play anything from the Phantom Menace DVD. Yeah. Uh, the Phantom Menace was absolutely terrible. Um, it, it, that's one of the examples. If you've got that disc and you want to know how bad things can look, that is the disc. Um, and, and, of course, if you've got these controls switched on, which are supposed to combat that, uh, all they're doing is just adding more on top. And that's the whole reason why for edge enhancement features like Edge Enhancer Resolution Plus or Noise Reduction. Now, Noise Reduction works by um, combating a... a uh, another artifact which is well known as being mosquito noise and uh, now to explain that it's almost as if there's something dancing around the edges of objects a swarm of mosquitoes, it, yeah, a swarm <laughs> of mosquitoes. Uh, that's why it gets its name um, so these features that were developed uh, a lot of these were developed when we were um, in an SD age standard definition age uh, low resolution it was to try and boost soft images that you would get with a ro- lower resolution but like we say, in a high definition environment, if you switch these things on, you're just going to be adding a lot of issues into the image. Um, so switch them off is basically our advice. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the guess one of the uh, the exception is with the MPEG noise reduction. Um, with a lot of people watching online content through the TVs now, like low quality YouTube broadcasts, sometimes if you can be bothered, it might it might make an improvement for that kind of material. But yeah, for 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 decently. Um, produce stuff yeah don't have them on but you're watching a blu-ray uh you know or something like that something high 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 quality content like blu-ray or a high def broadcast then definitely turn all that stuff off because it will just rob that image of its high definition detail okay so that's the sharpening and noise reduction features if in doubt switch them off and in any case we would suggest you switch them off and if you're watching youtube stuff on your tv then it's going to look bad no matter what you do, really. (laughs) Now, the next one that we're going to move on to is is the big one. It's one of these technologies that's been invented to try and get around the drawbacks of an LCD TV again. And and again, we're talking about LCD TVs, but, you know, this this is the drawback of the technology. It has so many little things that draw back on it that, you know, manufacturers have tried to do their best to try and make things look as good as they possibly can. Now, motion on an LED LCD TV is pretty poor. On any LCD TV, LCD was invented primarily for computers, for monitors, uh, where you got very little movement. That's where it was developed. It was also developed for things like shop uh, displays and so on. As a TV, it has issues with motion. You just have to watch any football or fast-moving sport on an LCD TV and, and as soon as the camera moves at any kind of rate then you lose definition straight away uh, you lose detail in the image and it starts to break up and it can look an absolute mess when we review TVs we have a, we have a test pattern that we can uh, put onto the TV and it basically shows us how many lines of resolution we're getting as soon as something starts to move and I guess guys I mean certainly over the years that I've been testing LCD TVs with all these motion enhancement controls switched off, you get around about 300 of resolution before you start to lose ev- everything. Yeah, yeah 300, 500. 500 with a really good one to the um, Panasonic IPS alphas. They're a bit, a bit better. Now, this technology was developed where the processing on the TV looks at certain frames. So it's so many frames before, so many frames after. And what it does, and it sounds great technology, what it, and it is great technology that they can actually get a chip to do this, is that it looks at the frames and then it creates a new frame based on the before and after to fill in that gap. So, uh, as an example, a ball moving across the screen in in a, a normal 25 frames per second, which is how TVs work, so that's 25 frames every second gives you that motion. If you were to watch that football at that at that rate, on an LCD TV, the football would appear to jump 
across the screen as it made its way left to right or right to left. And with this new system, the created frames, what it does is it, it looks at the frames and it says, all right, so this ball's moving, so I need to put it at this point in this new frame and then at this point in this next new frame for it to look like it's going from left to right. And when you watch it back, it looks super smooth and it works for that. Where you get an issue is if you're on the bridge of the uh, Starship Enterprise and it's a handheld camera shot and it's supposed to be moving around because the, they're being fired on and there's explosions going off and, and the camera's moving left to right, left to right. You switch that technology on for a scene like that and it suddenly looks like a dolly shot where it, the camera's on a tripod and is super, super locked into that image and it's no longer moving around because it's super smooth. And it completely ruins the look of films. <laughs> totally Basically, agree. Um, yeah. you know, if you're watching a lot of sport, which maybe was shot on video, will be shot on video, um, then and you've got an LCD TV, then then there's you know there's, there's an argument of saying you could use a, a bit of uh, frame interpolation for um, to enhance the motion in that sport broadcast. But if you're watching a lot of movies you know, on Blu-ray, for example, then you really really don't want to be using it because it will make that expensive film look like it's shot on cheap video cameras. Uh, and completely ruin any cinematic effect whatsoever, which is what Phil was describing with the scene from Star Trek at the beginning. Um, you know, and, and, and you know, th that's because film has a, has a very unique look to it. It's that 24 frames a second running through the camera gives it that, that film-like motion. And you want to retain that. Otherwise, it, you know, it just ruins the impact. And it goes back to what we've been saying all the time about this whole process, which is we're trying to get our TVs to show us exactly what the director's intended. And they certainly did not intend. I don't think J.J. Abrams intended for the opening scene of Star Trek to go from being a handheld, very frenetic, kinetic, you know, exciting action sequence to being look like it was shot on a on on a steady cam or a, you know or a tripod and was too smooth. In in films, is this does this this if you've got a, an object which moves from one side of the frame of the picture to the other in a small number of frames? Um, they normally uh, make that look realistic by uh, having motion blur on the object, don't they? I mean, that's just something that naturally happens. There is blur in in your vision on an object that moves um, in front of your vision. So all you have to do is, you know, move your hand, wave your hand fast in front of your eyes, and it's just a blur. Now, uh, um, obviously, on film, you get that blur, and and a, a ball moving across the screen would look like an elliptical fuzzy blur, and that's what it's meant to look like. And when you're running it at so many the correct frames per second, it, you get the correct um, effect of motion of movement of that ball, and it will look naturally like a ball. But then, when you add the the frame interpolation as it's technically called the motion enhancement on it then then what does it look like it looks super smooth so does it still look like a ball that's moving really fast or or yeah because yeah. that's what it's designed to do and something a simple shot like that will work and it will look okay and it will look a lot smoother but if you're a director um, and you're shooting on film. The reason you're shooting on film is because you want that motion blur, because that is the artistry of shooting at 24 frames per second. Um, that's what gives film its look. Um, it's supposed to have that motion blur. When people in action scenes and people move quickly and and the, there's that blur there. That's that's the whole reason. That's what gives it that phonetic energy. You shoot that at 60 frames a second. Everything is suddenly crystal clear within that frame and you lose that sense of speed. You you lose that phonetic energy. That's why a lot of directors shoot at 24 frames a second. And it's been done for 100 years. Now, there's a lot of arguments that, well, it was done that way because it was a limitation at the time. And yes, it was. It went from, I think it was 16 frames uh, to begin with, up to 24 frames uh, back in the early days of cinema. And then stuck at 24 frames since then. And a lot of people say, well, we, we've got the technology, we can improve on that. And Peter Jackson and James, James Cameron. Cameron, they are doing experiments with it. Peter Jackson's shooting The Hobbit at 48 frames a second. Now, it was shown at CinemaCon earlier in the year, which was like a trade event for cinema owners, distributors, um, directors, and, and people involved in the cinema industry. And he showed them 10 minutes of this at 48 frames per second. And the vast majority of blogs and comments and so on after that was that it looked terrible 
because it looked unnatural. It looked too super sharp and 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 that's the effect of shooting at a higher frame rate because you can capture more information with the higher frames. The problem is that you're moving away from the artistic interpretation of film that's been there for a hundred years. People are used to seeing it for a hundred years. Maybe Peter Jackson's right, but that's the way it's been and that's the way it should be. And you should have that motion blur, Stuart. It should it should be there. If you add this frame interpolation in, it's gonna take it away. But if you actually look at the images with this technology switched on, it looks unnatural. It's not only that unnatural, it often gets it wrong as well. Um, and you, it stutters and starts and kicks in and kicks out, changing, changes of pace um, on the screen, depending on what action's on the screen. It can, they can even the best of the systems, and I won't name names again, but they, they do often get caught out. And you'll see, even with the football, it, we, we can advise to maybe leave it on low, but you'll see three balls travelling across the screen sometime if if it's an unpredictable spin on the ball or something, or there's been a, a sudden, a quick corner taken or something, you can see that the, the, the image just literally stutters in front of your eyes. So it's... Because it's, it you're asking the process and to make something up that it doesn't know yeah. about because it hasn't looked far enough ahead to see what the outcome yeah. is. Um, yeah. It's all guesswork. Yeah, I mean, it's like the 3D to 2D to 3D conversion that these chips can do. Yeah, fantastic. It can actually do that. You know, mm. Fantastic that technology does that, but... It looks. Te- it still looks terrible. It looks fake, yeah. and and right. the same with this motion. Um, and and the problem is that when you buy uh, these TVs nowadays, a lot of the time that this technology switched on. I know that um, the TV that I have here at the moment, um, I did a factory reset on it, and it had the true motion control switched on out of the box. I can't think of one that doesn't. Yeah. I so, so there's lots of drawbacks to this technology. It does have some of its uses, like Steve said. Um, I mean, um, I mean, we're making a big thing about film, and film has a certain look. If it if it's a TV program shot on video, then adding this technology in on a low settings, not going to make it look any different because it's been shot as video. It's just gonna it's gonna make the the motion look a, look a little bit smoother. But as soon as you get a, a busy scene where there's lots of things going on, um, so an example of that would be a speedboat going across the ocean. Now you've got the ocean moving, you've got the speedboat moving, you've got the uh, the water behind the boat from the engine, so it's you know it's making a, a tide of of white behind it, uh, and the camera's panning as well. Um, that's an awful lot of work for a, a processing in a TV yeah. to handle, and that's where you're going to notice some real issues. Um, you're going to notice ghosting. There's one scene in Casino Royale. I use it for every test that I did with motion interpolation technology, and that is Daniel Craig. It's in the at the beginning of the picture when they're in the building site, and he's chasing the bomb maker through the building site, and he's running down one of the corridors, and it's where the guy that he's chasing, jumps up and goes through the window and Daniel Craig just runs straight through the plasterboard wall. Just before that, he's running down the corridor. The actual wall behind him, because he's moving so quickly across the frame and the camera's moving at the same time, if you have this technology switched on, the entire wall that's behind him follows him down the corridor. See, that's a totally (laughs) different movie, isn't it? Totally different movie, yeah. Totally. So uh, You said in the introduction, Phil, to this that um, it's uh, the... Motion enhancement features uh, are, have been created to combat the um, LCD technology. Yeah. Or, or the drawbacks in that technology. So, yeah. um, again, not wanting to come down to be down on uh, LCDs, but um, is this technology found on plasma TVs? It is, but it shouldn't be there. And and the only yeah. reason it is there is because of the marketing departments that we were discussing at the start of the podcast. Um, if uh, if they have a, a technology that they can shove in a TV and sell it as a, as a feature, they will do, even though that uh, that's not required. Now, uh, let's get one thing clear as well. Plasma uh, motion is far better, but still issues there with with plasma um, and and motion. And one of the things that that kind of points to that is is the 50 hertz bug that's been on the Panasonic TVs for a few years now. A lot better now. Um, on the latest models, in fact, it's practically unseen on on the latest models. But again, let's not say that plasma is absolutely perfect at motion because a lot of the time there are the odd issue here and there. And it gets back to the thing that we're saying: each technology has its weaknesses. Plasma is far stronger with motion, and you shouldn't need intelligent frame creation or active motion or true motion or motion plus or whatever it's called. Um, you shouldn't need that with a plasma TV. Whereas LCD. 
it has an issue with motion. It always has it has had an issue with motion. Watch any fast-moving scene with the cameras panning around something that's a good example. The Olympics, hundred hundred meters. If the camera's following the guys, the guys running will most likely be in focus, but everything else is going to be a complete and utter mess. And you're probably going to lose their legs as well at some point. So, so yes, I mean, you know, LCD technology has its drawbacks. Plasma has its drawbacks. But in terms of motion, plasma is a damn sight better. I mean, even on a bad plasma, you're still going to get eight, 900 lines of resolution yeah. um, on, on a fast-moving scene. So um, it's a good job at the end of this podcast we're going to tell people what the perfect TV actually is. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> when we find uh, it, we'll let you know. As a side, as a side note, just... Um, as, as you've already said, Phil, you know they shouldn't have frame interpolation or motion enhancement features on a plasma TV, but most of them do because it's a marketing gimmick. Um, turn it off. Also, be wary because uh, on, on certain TVs, um, for example, Panasonic, uh, there's there's what's called intelligent frame creation, which is their version of frame interpolation and motion enhancement, um, and that's um, that that can default to on. Um, for um, normal content like t- you know, 50 hertz content such as TV broadcasts uh, or DVDs but um, if you then put on a Blu-ray at 24p um, 1080p 24p Blu-ray it will then go to what's called Cinema Smooth 24p Smooth Film which is automatically on max uh, in, in, when you watch a 24p uh, disc so you may not necessarily know that until you start looking at everything thinking how it's like video uh, rather than film so just uh, you know, unfortunately, there could be dif- differing controls depending on the content you're watching as well. And the advice is always to switch it. Switch it off. I mean, I'd switch it off even if it was an LCD, but uh, but on a plasma, absolutely, definitely. Yeah, that's that's good advice. It it is one of these things again, personal preference when it comes to sport. I, I, that's the only exception I would I would ever make is on an LCD. Perhaps it might look a little better on low, or if it's a Samsung, it's clear. And it doesn't seem to add that much false motion to things. Although it's doing it, it it's not too bad. Yeah, that is, it's definitely one of the milder uh, interpolation engines. But you could, even if you said it's custom, custom on a very low de-judder or de-blur, you'll probably get, you'll probably get better results than, than the default settings. Um, yeah, Sony's, Sony's are similar, which is... Um, is, clear, is it clear on them? Is it their, set, their low setting is clear, isn't it? Yeah, that's all, they're also quite good, um, but yeah, like you say, only only for sport really. So this is this is another one of the uh, picture along with dimming is another one of the picture processing features that we can't just say turn it off in the uh, information on the Picture Perfect website. We've said see details, and um, in the drop down box, click the um, the yellow details tab, and you'll see the details which explain. Um, the the situations in which we recommend that you leave this feature on. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the second half of step two, the video isn't up yet. It will be once this podcast goes out. So go and have a look at the video. This is more about catching things like Steve just mentioned that does happen on some TVs that even when you, you think you're switched into the correct mode, the TV might not be switching everything off and you need to go in and check either that it's switching it off or it's selecting the correct correct setting for for that mode now back in part one step one we said switch into the cinema mode thx mode for the picture and in the majority of tvs that will select the correct settings for color temperature color gamma and gamma now these are technical terms that we're going to get into in more detail in step three but in step two we just want to make sure that your tv is selecting the correct setting like say thx tvs guys when you select THX, it does select all the correct settings on that. Yeah, and that's part of the uh, certification um, requirements. I'm sure it has to it has to automatically do that. Um, I think I can only recall one TV that have recently where we've gone to cinema or was it movie on that one where it didn't select the, the right color temperature. Um, but yeah, generally you will find that, that that's all taken care of with that, like you say. But uh, it's not it's not you can't take it totally for granted because someone will go cinema to uh, normal or standard color temperatures which are without getting too technical far too blue um so yeah you, you, you do still have to double check and the correct color temperature is warm on, on the vast majority of tvs on the vast warm. majority i'm just trying to think of another example <laughs> sometimes it's warm too warm isn't it too. <laughs> but yeah basically warm for color temperature 
Color temperature is, is effectively the color of white, and they use a specific set of uh, industry standards. Uh, in this particular case, it's called D65, and that's uh, that's used for producing um, Blu-rays and DVDs and TV um, programs. And so you just want to make sure that your TV set to that. And, and as uh, Mark has just said, um, almost all, without exception, movie or cinema, or certainly THX modes, uh, will automatically select the correct color temperature that close that gets closest to that industry standard. It won't be exactly that 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 that, that industry standard because no no out of the box setting is going to be. To do that, you need to get in a professional with the right equipment. But certainly, you want to make sure that it's it's close to it, and that will be the the warm setting should be the one that's nearest. So the next thing after color temperature is color gamut and Steve's going to explain that the, the color gamut or color space some some people call it color space and other, other TVs will call it color gamut but it's the same thing it's basically just all the colors that make up the picture and the picture is made up of what's called three primary colors which are red green and blue and the three secondary colors which are obviously colors that are made up of the primary colors so in the case of yellow it's green and red in the case of uh, cyan it's green and blue in the case of magenta it's red and blue so you take those primary and secondary colors and you combine them together and that creates all the other colors that you'll see in the, in the visible spectrum on your TV, basically. Um, now, that sounds great. You know, lots and lots of colors and the more colorful, the better, surely. And that's not necessarily the case because, uh, as we've said all along here, um, the content you're watching, be it Blu-ray or DVD or, or, or TV programs, they are mastered to specific industry standards. And color also has a set of standards. Uh, and you want your TV, ideally, to match those standards as closely as possible, because once again, it means you're seeing what the director wants you to see. A good example, one that's used quite a lot, is The Matrix. In the movie The Matrix, there's very two specific colour schemes. When they're in The Matrix, everything's got a slightly green tinge to it. And when they're out in the real world, everything's got a slightly blue tinge to it. Uh, and that was a deliberate choice by the filmmakers when they made the movie. And you want to make sure that when you're watching it on your TV, you're you're seeing that. And you're not, you know, if, if there's too much green in your image and suddenly everything looks green and you've lost the whole creative and artistic, uh, you know, intent of the, of the makers of the film. So that's why you want your colours on your TV to match the standards that are used to create um, the content you're watching. And generally, again, as with colour temperature, the colour gamut or colour space that, that is selected when you select a movie mode or a cinema mode or THX mode should as close as possible on the TV match those standards. Obviously, again, it won't exactly match it because these are TVs that are being, you know, um, calibrated in, in a factory. They're mass produced. It's going to be, you know, close though. Hopefully, in the ballpark. And certainly, from my experience of testing, um, these days they're, they're getting pretty good at, at getting quite close to these standards, even out of the box. Even when you select a movie or um, or cinema, or, or hopefully, if it's got THX mode, definitely THX mode. We'll, we'll, we'll try and adhere to those standards as closely as possible. So again, basically, color gamut, color space, those are the colors of your picture. Uh, color temperature is, is the color of white for your picture. And you want them both to be as close as possible to those industry standards so that you're seeing what uh, the director wants you to see. What we're saying is if, if you select cinema mode or t certainly THX mode on your TV, um, it should set it to the correct uh, color gamut. If you go through your menus and you can't find any control that mentions color space or color gamut, then it's not there for you to set. It's not on the TV. There's only a few TVs that actually have uh, an area where you can select the color space or the color gamut. And the only one that pops into my head at the moment is LG. Uh, uh, Sam, I'm sorry. Panasonic now as well. Panasonic do as well, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, okay. and they both call it Rec 709 on some of their TVs, which is very useful. In our guide, we've got <clears throat> LG BT 709, Panasonic is Rec 709, Samsung is Auto, yep. Sharp is Standard, and Toshiba is BT 709. Those are the ones that we've got listed. Yeah. If if people don't have that control, should they be worried? No, they shouldn't. They shouldn't be. Uh, overly worried about that it's only certain tvs that will have that in there and the tvs that have that in there if you stick it into cinema mode thx mode or isf mode if it's got isf uh, if you then find that control it's usually set correctly to rec 709 or bt 709 um it's usually bang on um so you really you don't have to worry about this control just go and check it um if if you think you need to check it and uh like we say, some TVs have that selection, some TVs don't. Our guide will tell you exactly which TVs do have it and what it should be set to. Just one thing that I will pick up on, if we have American readers and viewers and listeners and you're looking at the guide, now Rec. 709 is very, very close to the PAL colour standard, uh, which is why we say select 709 because I think there's a 0.01 difference 
in the color um, for PAL and for HD. If you come from America or any country that uses NTSC color standard, it is different and it will look different. So that's when this control becomes really important for you guys in the States because if you look at the uh, look through the menus and find it correctly, you're going to have to set it to Rec. 601 yep. for NTSC, Rec. 709 for HD. That's the only exception, and it's only for our American cousins. So the Americans have... Um, Never twice uh, the same colour. Yes, that's, <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's the NTSC, which is standard definition broadcasts. Yep. And yes. is that standard definition off DVD as well? Yep. Yes. From NTSC uh, DVDs is Rec. 601. Rec. 601, and it, and it um, is but, different. But when they're watching high definition... It's Rec. 709. Rec. 709 is, is the standard for HD, so that's Blu-ray, HD broadcast, anything that's HD um, and is 8-bit, which is broadcast, video, uh, then it is Rec. 709. That is the industry standard. If you select cinema or movie or THX mode on an American telly, will it automatically swap between Rec. 601 and Rec. 709 when you're watching an, uh, standard definition and high-definition stuff? If it's a THX-certified TV then I would like to say yes. We don't know, do we? Because we don't have but any for, American but TVs. But for any other test. American TVs, we'd have to have our American cousins send us that information because we don't know. We don't get to see American TVs very often. Um, but certainly, if it's a THX certified set, then it should be hitting the correct color space for the material that's, that's chosen. Uh, finally, the last thing that you need to check, and like we say, most of the time when you select cinema mode or THX mode, uh, it will set itself to uh, the correct setting, and that is gamma. Now, the easiest way to describe gamma, Mark, is the higher the number, the darker looking the picture, the lower the number, the more washed out it is. I think that's the simplest term we can yeah, use for gamma. I, I, yeah, if, I'm going to say, if we thought colour gamma was, um, was complex, <laughs> <laughs> trying to explain gamma, <laughs> it is, uh, it is uh, going to be even more tricky, but yeah. I guess the easiest way to describe it is the brightness of between black and white. Um, so if you think of a really dark black and a really white white, and then all all the gradient in between that is gradient yeah. to technical a town. Everything um, in between the different shades of grey, maybe the, the different shades of grey yeah. in between there. Um, what gamma is 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 the the brightness of each step, um, yeah. and and if you were to plot it on a piece of paper, it would look like a curve. Because if it's black, then it's going to be zero, and then if it's at the brightest point, then it's going to be bright. So it's actually, it's actually the, the the rate at which white comes out of black, isn't it? Technically, so. But yeah, like you say, it is literally just the luminance, the brightness um, of everything in between white and black. Now there was a new standard announced recently, which we're not going to get into because we've still to examine it and see how uh, correct it is because it's more of a professional standard than one that will move across the TV. So for TV, we always suggest that it's 2.2 for a normal living room. Now, yeah. the gamma numbers go from 1.9 to 2.6 on the vast majority of TVs. Some will do it a little bit differently, but it's usually between 1.9 and 2.6. Don't worry about the numbers too much if it's a low number it's bright if it's a high number it's darker yeah. and for a normal living room 2.2 is what we would say if you watch in darker surroundings so with all the lights off uh, on some tvs 2.2 might be a little bit too light and when we say that it, it yeah. means that the blacks look a little bit too washed out um look a little bit too too bright than they should be so we'd select 2.4 or 2.6. And again, you're going to have to experiment, basically, uh, with your yeah. TV in, in your surroundings. But I would uh, say there aren't many domestic televisions that look very good with a 2.4 gamma. The better ones do, the plasmas in particular. But I, w I would vo avoid going above 2.2 for, for most TVs we come across. I think, I think you, for most most living rooms, not that capable you know. of, of of displaying the the, the the gradients as we call the low down shades near black. They struggle if you put them on a two point four gamma. So two point two is is a good catch all, and if it's a bit brighter, two point not one point eight bright room sort of setting. setting. That's quickly gone through step two of Picture Perfect. It's all up on the website. If you go to myperfectpicture.tv, it'll take you 
straight along to the Picture Perfect website. If you want to go into the forum and ask some questions uh, about anything that we've discussed on tonight's podcast or anything uh, to do with Picture Perfect so far, we're up to step two, then go into the forum. That's avforums.com forward slash Picture Perfect. Uh, and obviously, step three is going to be launching very soon, and we'll give you more details of that as we get closer to it. Um, who knows? It might actually be out the next time we do one of these home cinema podcasts. Um, so that's it for step two. Like I say, any questions, ask in the forums. And all I need to do now is thank the guys for their time this evening. So thanks to Stuart, Mark, and Steve. Just thank you very much. And this is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening. We'll catch you again for the Home Cinema Podcast next month. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.